When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. All right. It's a sunny Saturday afternoon in April, and I've driven up to New Rochelle, New York, a suburb just north of New York City. You get to park, like, three blocks away. I mean, there people are showing up for this thing. I'm here for a celebration. A lot of activity here, a lot of excitement. Really, more of a commemoration. You know, the mayor's going to be here and all the dignitaries. You see, everyone is gathered here today to honor the person that put New Rochelle on the map. If you travel out of state and you tell someone, well, I live in New Rochelle, the first thing they'll tell you is, oh, the Dick Van Dyke Show. The Dick Van Dyke Show. Starring Dick Van Dyke. Beloved actor Dick Van Dyke played comedy writer Rob Petrie on The Dick Van Dyke Show. A young Mary Tyler Moore played his wife, Laura. Would you uh, state your name and address, please? Well, it's uh, Mrs. Laura Petrie, 148 Bonnie Meadow Road, New Rochelle, New York. That's right. The fictional couple lived in New Rochelle. And today, the townspeople are dedicating the real Bonnie Meadow Road to the hit 1960s series. You could take a picture in the TV set. I'd love to do that with Nancy and with you. (laughs) Dick Van Dyke show creator, 97-year-old comedy legend Carl Reiner even Skyped in for the occasion. Ladies and gentlemen, Carl Reiner! He's wearing an Argyle sweater. He looks great, actually. The reason the show was set in New Rochelle? When Reiner was just starting out, he and his family lived here. Every episode had a little of me and my wife and kids in it. Now, as much as I loved Rob and Laura Petrie, there's another person, a real person, who lived in New Rochelle and who was pretty important. Other than Carl Reiner, you know who else is from here? Jay Leno for a while. Andrea Mitchell. Andrea Mitchell. And Willie Mays. Willie Mays used to live in New Rochelle off of Pinebrook. Oh, uh, let's see. I'm trying to think. I'm drawing a blank. Uh, Well, let's... um, he uh, wrote pamphlets. Pamphlets. Carl Reiner knows who I'm talking about. No more important name in our history than Tom Paine. Yes, Thomas Paine. He didn't just write pamphlets. With his pen, he helped birth this very country. Oh my God, could he write? You're a great writer, and you acknowledge that he was a, a, a great writer as well. Oh, well, let's see. I scribble, he wrote, yes. <laughs> Payne's pamphlet, Common Sense, is not only one of the best-selling publications in American history, it was the intellectual spark that lit the fuse for the American Revolution. Without him, there might not be a United States. Yet when Payne died, only six people showed up at his funeral. The paltry obit that was published at the time summed up his life in this line. He had lived long, did some good, and much harm. Even after Payne died, he couldn't rest in peace. The guy's bones were stolen. And was Thomas Payne a founding father? I don't know the answer to that. Was he, Ma? In this episode, we'll tell you why Payne matters. And we'll give him the send-off he deserves, complete with an original Mobitz production number. Oh, Thomas Payne! 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 Thomas
make no mistake, no pain, no gain of independence. From CBS Sunday Morning and Simon & Schuster, I'm Mo Rocca, and this is Mobituaries. This Mobit? Thomas Paine. June 8th, 1809. Death of a Forgotten Founding Father. You mean he's dead? Of course. What are you learning about dead people for? All I want you to do is teach her how to act with live people. Well, education's a very difficult thing to control, Harry. One thing leads Work to... on her and not me. That was the incomparable comedian Judy Holliday teaching her bullying boyfriend a thing or two in the 1950 film Born Yesterday. The scene's funny because it's true. Many of us have heard of Thomas Paine, but don't really know what he did. This is an important guy, right? Yes, Before scientific polls, one way to measure public opinion, a proxy for it anyway, might be pamphlet sales. (laughs) Anthony Salvanto heads up the CBS News polling unit. I asked him to help us gauge how well recognized or unrecognized Thomas Paine is as a founding father. The polling unit called a random sampling of a thousand people. The way this one is asked is, you know, which of these people is a founding father? And Thomas Paine's uh, name was was put out there. The choices were Abraham Lincoln, Thomas Paine, Frederick Douglass, Fitzgerald, Thomas Grant III, who you know as... Oh, you got me. Anthony, <laughs> he was the president on the TV show Scandal with Kerry Washington. Come on. Ah, thank you. Other choices included James Tiberius Kirk, the captain of the Enterprise, Colonel Sanders, Will Smith, Frank Sinatra, and I don't know... And what were the results? Well, uh, Frank Sinatra comes in at 1%. Old Blue Eyes might not be happy with that. But here's the most striking result. 43% selected Abraham Lincoln as the one founding father on the list. And now, obviously, he comes some years after the people we Uh, we typically think of of as founding fathers. In fact, four score and seven years later. (laughs) Exactly, sir. Just 32% of respondents correctly named Thomas Paine. So the recognition of Paine as a founding father is mixed at best, even if most of us recognize the man's words. I know, and it's amazing. People may have known that he said, these are the times that try men's souls. They may know that he said, uh, we have it in our power to begin the world over again. They may know that he wrote Common Sense, but they don't really know who he is. That's Paine biographer Craig D. Nelson, Not to be confused with actor Craig T. Nelson. A little bit of housekeeping. How often are you asked if you starred in the sitcom Coach? All the time. Really? Yeah, all the time. In fact, I I think it helped me launch my career that people thought I was Coach, so they would buy the book and then I'd show up at autographings and they'd be horribly disappointed. But too late, you already paid. Good point. (laughs) You got him in the tent. (laughs) Why not? Why did you want to write about Tom Paine? Well, I read this funny little article that talked about how 10 years after he died, his biggest fan went to New Rochelle and dug his bones up. So today, if you do a Thomas Paine book, and you will find this out when this podcast comes out, uh, people will contact you to see if you would like to buy a bone. And have you ever touched one of Thomas Paine's bones? Yes. Which one, which bone? I think it was like a finger, but uh, someone showed up and tried to sell me something. And, and I want to assure listeners that we will talk about what happened to his bones later in the episode. But suffice it to say, Craig, 
This kind of devotion is remarkable. When Thomas Paine was alive, he was the most famous person in the world. He knew everyone. He knew Jefferson. He knew Washington. He knew Robespierre. He knew, I mean, it's, it's astonishing uh, who his associates are. And he'd come a very long way. As opposed to most of the other founding fathers who came from money, Paine was born in 1737 into humble circumstances in England. He's like the working class founder. What inspires him to even come to America? He had the most horrible life you could possibly have in England. His mother was an Anglican named Frances Cock, who married a Quaker named Joseph Paine, thus making her... Anyway, Joseph was a staymaker. Another way of saying, he made corsets. That were a combination like a bustier and a girdle, this giant one-piece thing that women wore. Like Spanx. Right. Uh, but anyway, so that's what he did. Young Thomas drops out of school at 12. A few years later, when Britain goes to war with France, Payne seeks adventure on the high seas as a privateer, capturing enemy ships for the British government. It looks like he made quite a bit of money doing that, and he ended up taking, you know, junior year abroad, he ended up as a 20-year-old man wandering around London, taking classes, basically giving himself the education that the middle-class founders are getting in schools. He got himself. He learned how to write. He learned all about the classics. So Thomas Paine is like a sponge. Yes. He's just absorbing this. Yes. He has bills to pay, though, so he takes up his father's trade of stay-making. But things are too tight. Payne can't make ends meet and soon falls into debt. And this is where things really start going south. And so you see Thomas Payne moving from town to town one step ahead of his creditors. And his personal life is a disaster. He has one wife who dies in childbirth and loses the child, too. He has another wife he's separated from. He tries to be a state maker. He tries to be a grocer. He tries to be a tax collector and fails at all of these things. It's during his time as a tax collector that Payne first catches the activist bug. The country's excise officers, another way of saying tax collectors, hadn't received a raise in over a century, and Payne felt they were overdue. So he writes one of his very first pamphlets demanding better pay. It doesn't go over so well. He's fired from his job and forced to sell off most of his possessions. So personally and professionally, he's kind yeah. of a wreck. There's no place to go but to get on a boat. Luckily for Payne, he had made a valuable connection in London. Benjamin Franklin, who was representing colonial interests in England, met Payne and was impressed by the young firebrand. Benjamin Franklin called him his adopted political son. And so, carrying a letter of recommendation from Franklin, Thomas Paine set sail for the New World. But the voyage across the Atlantic isn't easy. Paine almost dies from typhus. He arrives none too soon in November of 1774. He lands in Philadelphia, where uh, Franklin's from. And, and, and Philadelphia is the, the place to go. Yeah, this is the big city in America at that moment. And almost immediately, he becomes the editor of Pennsylvania Magazine. Payne builds Pennsylvania Magazine into the widest circulating in the colonies. But it's with a different kind of periodical that he makes his biggest impact. Payne was a big, big, big hottie in the pamphlet world. Yes, pamphlets were hot in the 1770s. What's the deal with pamphlets? 
Oh. Because I associate pamphlets with pre-9-11 when people could roam around airports with these things, handing them to you right. when you arrive, right. saying, please join my group. So a pamphlet is a little tiny essay. They were like 10 pages, maybe tops. And they were just printed on a great big broadsheet and then folded up and handed out to people. But you would have the biggest um, local heroes would be publishing pamphlets. So you would read Thomas Jefferson pamphlets and you'd read uh, Alexander Hamilton pamphlets. Does he make a name for himself quickly? Uh, no, that happens because of of offering to write a pamphlet to convince Americans that they should no longer call themselves Britons, that they should call themselves Americans. I mean, you say that in a very <laughs> understated way. That's kind of a big deal. The pamphlet Craig is talking about was written six months before the Declaration of Independence. It was common sense. After Uncle Tom's Cabin, it's the most influential piece of writing in American history. And he turns every single thing the British had been saying on their heads and comes up with an explanation for why Americans should go it alone and why it'll be great to be an American and we'll have this whole continent and we'll run our own affairs and we'll stop being insulted by the British. You see, the great majority of colonists had come here with real estate contracts that guaranteed that the only taxes they'd have to pay were local. But like all good deals that seemed too good to be true, it was. When the British needed to fund the Seven Years' War, the taxes started piling up. The Stamp Act, the Paper Act, all of these different acts they pursued. So Tom Paine is tapping into real fury. Yeah. A, a sense of betrayal. Disrespect. Fueled by his own outrage, Payne articulates in common sense a grand ambition for the would-be nation. The cause of America is, in great measure, the cause of all mankind. I mean, that is a topic sentence. <laughs> it's no surprise that Bartlett's book of quotations is full of lines from Thomas Paine. Lines that, frankly, I don't have the voice to deliver. Hmm. Now, who do I know with a voice sonorous, stentorian, and authoritative enough to read Thomas Paine's words? Wait, wait, don't tell me. I know who does. From NPR and WBEZ Chicago, this is Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, the NPR News Quiz. You know who could do this? Bill Curtis, the scorekeeper on Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. He does a lot of movie trailers, you know, in a world. But you want him to read these lines. You know, guys, we should get Bill Curtis to read some of these lines. We're going to do that. Actually. Fantastic. And we'll include me actually saying it right now. Because it'll make, Fantastic. make the audience feel like they're part of the whole process. And so I called in a favor. Now, my friend Bill Curtis isn't just scorekeeper for Wait, Wait, where I've been a panelist the last 20 years. He's an Emmy-winning news anchor and, perhaps most legendarily, the narrator of the movie Anchorman. And in San Diego, one anchorman was more man than the rest. His name was Ron Burgundy. So here we go. Common sense. We have it in our power to begin the world over again. Tell it, Bill. Society in every state is a blessing. But government, even in its best state, is but a necessary evil. In its worst state, an intolerable one. Can't argue with that. There is something very absurd in supposing a continent to be perpetually governed by an island. Goosebumps, right? It is not in numbers, but in unity, that our great strength lies. It's important to remember that the very notion of the colonies banding together, a central argument of common sense, was new. 
did the colonies even think they had anything to do with each other? No, they thought of themselves as Virginians or New Yorkers. They did not really identify with each other yet. Up until common sense, being American wasn't really a concept or a compliment. The word American at this point meant a cracker hillbilly. It meant uh, someone who was a piece of trash. And because the English considered all of their colonies to be outlying, low-rent, trashy, vulgar uh, people who were stupid and ignorant. Payne rebranded the word American. Beyond separation from England, common sense called for an end to hereditary monarchy. Back to you, Bill. In short, monarchy and succession have laid not this or that kingdom only, but the world in blood and ashes. At first, Payne kept his name off the pamphlet. First of all, it was a very dangerous thing to write. It was, it was treasonous. Does he sign it later? Yes, and he does uh, take credit for it eventually, and, and people know who it is anyway, because it's a very, like, big, small town at the time. What do the other founding fathers think when this thing catches fire? Oh, Thomas Jefferson thinks he's fantastic, and they become close friends. A lot of people attribute it at first to John Adams, and at first he says, if, uh, if only I did, and then he and Payne have a falling out in time. In spite of the bad blood between the two men, Adams reportedly said, Without the pen of the author of Common Sense, the sword of Washington would have been raised in vain. But it's not just what Paine writes, it's how he writes. Paine understood that since most people at the time were illiterate, Common Sense had to be written in plain English that could be read out loud. It's very modern. And he's writing for broadcast, not for one of these outlier cable channels where where you're preaching to the choir. Yes, no, he's he's trying to reach as many people as possible. And he does, right? If there had been no Thomas Paine, there would have been no what? There would have been, eventually, the United States might have been formed, but it wouldn't have been unified into a country the way it was in the manner that it was. You give him and common sense that much credit. Absolutely. Payne puts his money where his mouth is, donating the proceeds from common sense to the Continental Army. And shortly after the colonies declare independence, Payne joins the army, serving as an aide-de-camp to General Nathaniel Green. But he doesn't stop writing. Payne's sequel to Common Sense is The American Crisis, a whole series of pamphlets that serves as a rallying cry during the conflict's darkest days. Well, this is during the very long period in which the Americans are losing the Revolutionary War. He's trying to buck up everybody's spirits. Uh, He's writing all these so that people don't give up on Washington and the war. There's a spectacular moment where he writes one of his biggest pieces, and it's the night before they're going to go from Philadelphia to Trenton. That Washington. Uh, Right, Washington crossing the Delaware, a famous picture. And it's the first real victory of the American Revolution. And the night before? Uh, He has them all listen to Payne's words by candlelight. So it's a very beautiful thing. These are the times that try men's souls. The summer soldier and the sunshine patriot will, in this crisis, shrink from the service of their country. But he that stands it now deserves the love and thanks of man and woman. Tyranny, like hell, is not easily conquered. Yet we have this consolation with us, that the harder the conflict, the more glorious 
the triumph. So the war ends, and Thomas Paine is riding high. His writing unified the colonists, roused the armies of our land to victory, delivered us to freedom. It's a ghoulish hypothetical, but had he died, you know, say in 1783, right. would he would his reputation be different? Oh, absolutely. It's a shame. In fact, in fact, they uh, die young, leave a pretty corpse. It, it, there's the number one person who should have done it. <laughs> but that's not how history works. So how did Thomas Paine go from legend to pariah? The answer lies in what happened after the war. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. Ride a to I'm back in New Rochelle at the Thomas Paine Cottage. So, look, it's not, it doesn't look like Monticello or Mount Vernon or Hyde Park, but, you know, it has, it has status. It's got the plaque, so that's a big deal. The plaque I'm referring to designates this modest domicile a National Historic Landmark. New York State gave this property to Payne after the American Revolution in gratitude for his service to the country. Today, it's playing host to a colonial fair. Ready, company, to the front, march! Left, left, left. And some folks are taking the theme very seriously. You march slow in cadence and you keep the line dressed. You can look to your left or your right, but don't move your heads. That's not allowed. I do know a little about the American Revolution. What do you know about the American Revolution? Um, I'm obsessed with it. Obsessed? Well, then surely these two young historians know something about our episode's undersung founding father. So, um, what do you know about Thomas Paine? He wrote Common Sense. What else did he do? Mm, he lived in that house over there. Right. Mm-hmm. Is he a founding father? No. Why not? Mm, that I don't really know. Okay, but you just know that he's not a founding father. Yeah. Now, who is a founding father? Alexander Hamilton. Knew it. If there was a big, if there was a musical about Thomas Paine, mm. then maybe, maybe you'd think of him as a founding father. Maybe. Thank you for that insight, Rachel and Aaron. Now back to post-Revolutionary War America, where Thomas Paine is having a tough time fitting in. That's partly because of his temperament. When historians fall in love with their subjects, you can't fall in love with this guy. He's too difficult. You know, he's just too cranky and difficult and nutty. And Did he just have a terrible personality? I think it alternated because you see him spending time with Jefferson and time with Washington and time with Franklin. You have all these wonderful stories about him having wonderful times with all of these people. And so there was something very charming about him. And But then there was this other side to him that people found repulsive. So it seems to flip back and forth. Repulsive is a very strong word. But not as strong as the words John Adams used to describe him. He called Paine, quote, a mongrel between pig and puppy begotten by a wild boar on a bitch wolf. Actually, it sounds much better when Bill Curtis says it. 
Bill? A mongrel between pig and puppy, begotten by a wild boar on a bitch wolf. At his core, Thomas Paine is an agitator, an activist, a revolutionary. That's the only setting he knows. He doesn't know how to turn it off and talk about soccer or the real housewives. I mean, you know, Franklin would have loved dishing about the housewives. So while the other founding fathers shift into statesman mode, setting themselves up with cushy government jobs, Paine is still on the warpath. And that warpath leads him straight back to his home country of England, where he publishes his next book. In The Rights of Man, he defends the French Revolution and citizen rights. Just like common sense, the rights of man, which Paine dedicates to George Washington, becomes an instant bestseller. Whatever is my right as a man is also the right of another. And it becomes my duty to guarantee as well as to possess. While The Rights of Man does boffo box office, becoming one of the most widely read books of its day, it doesn't go over so well with the London critics. It's an attack on the monarchy, and the British accuse him of treason, and he has to leave town. And he gets out just in time, right? Yeah. He's yes. tried in absentia? Yes. Payne heads to France, where he tries to keep his head. He goes to France to take part in the French Revolution. He's actually elected to the National Assembly of France. He's a French legislator, even though he can't speak French. Payne is on the side of the revolutionaries who have deposed King Louis XVI. But Payne is also anti-capital punishment. And the more extreme revolutionaries, also known as the Jacobins and led by Robespierre, are crazy about their guillotine. The nonviolent Payne finds himself denounced as a counter-revolutionary and thrown into prison during what's known as the Reign of Terror. Surely his old friends back across the pond can help him out, but... The American government does nothing to help him get out. And Jefferson could have, uh, Washington could have, no one lifts a finger because they've sort of uh, had enough of him. The American ambassador to France, the even less well-known founding father, Governor Morris, who I should point out was never governor of anything, doesn't do Jacques to help Payne. Payne gets so fed up, he does the unthinkable. He writes a widely published letter trashing George Washington. And as to you, sir, treacherous in private friendship, for so you have been to me and that in the day of danger, and a hypocrite in public life, the world will be puzzled to decide whether you are an apostate or an imposter, whether you have abandoned good principles or whether you ever had any. I mean, where does this spleen, this anger come from? Well, this comes out of them not helping him when he's in prison. Now, the reason folks back in America weren't helping Payne while he was in that French prison is partly because of what Payne wrote while he was in that prison. His most controversial book, The Age of Reason. Its subject, religion. My own mind is my own church. A pretty great line, yes and pretty inflammatory. In the age of reason, Paine doesn't hold back. He refutes the divinity of Christ and says this about organized religion. All national institutions of churches, whether Jewish, Christian, or Turkish, appear to me 
no other than human inventions set up to terrify and enslave mankind and monopolize power and profit. Publishing the Age of Reason earns Paine a reputation as an infidel, an atheist, and even an antichrist. In truth, Paine's views weren't much different from the other founding fathers. He was a deist, meaning he believed in a supreme being which created the universe, but which didn't intervene in human affairs. But the other founding fathers were shrewd enough not to articulate their views and offend the masses. So he did actually believe in a god, and he wasn't really an atheist, but he thought that uh, religion had turned people, so that's why he decided to attack it. But he did it in a very sort of crazy way where no one who was a religious person was going to read this and say, oh, you're right, I should give up religion. Uh, so it was just sort of pointless. So the great persuader sort of becomes the opposite. Well, it was a horrible idea because you didn't try to affect the mass of people uh, and, and take away their belief system. Payne eventually gets out of prison in 1794, when, in one of history's ironies, Robespierre is himself guillotined. By the time Payne returns to the United States, he's isolated and miserable, a shell of the man who had helped inspire the creation of this very country. He's even denied the right to vote, the rationale being he's no longer American after his stint in France. In his final days, he takes increasing comfort in brandy. The drink, not a woman named Brandy. We know he was a mean drunk. For one thing. And we know that he couldn't handle his alcohol well. And we know that sort of these basically only from what other people have said, that they found him drunk on the street and they found him in these situations. He has a big nose and he had rosacea, so frequently it's red. Is it and, like is it like a gin blossom from drinking? Well, it looks like that, yes. Okay. But but it's like actually, a tip on the nose. Yes, exactly. He's like so not taking care of himself. His toenails are, are like claws. They've like grown out into claws. Like talons. Yeah, exactly. You remember those like... old cartoons, the magpies on the power lines oh, right, with right. the toenails <laughs> curled around? I, to, I forget what their names the were. crows, right. Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. And uh, Heckle and Jekyll. Heckle and Jekyll. Heckle and Jekyll. So he's right. got toenails like Heckle and Jekyll's claws. Yeah. And, and, it's, and are they dirty? Oh, sure. Yeah, no, he's not taking care of himself at all. <sighs> yeah, no, it's just... It's very sad, but at the same time, it's charted. You know, you actually see where he alienates every single person who might help him. He turns against everyone, and it's horribly sad. It's not clear how much of Payne's reputation for drinking was the slanderous work of his enemies. But one thing is certain. Thomas Payne was uncelebrated when he died on June 8, 1809, in the New York City neighborhood of Greenwich Village. He was 72 years old. So he's taken up to New Rochelle to be buried, and six people come for the burial. And who Um, comes? uh, His uh, servant woman and her two sons, and someone who's hired to move the body around and bring the casket around, and then two neighbors from the the area. So six people show up. Right. And, And it, I mean, it's pathetic. Well, I would like, to give him a proper send-off. And I know just where to do it. Thomas Paine dropped dead in what's now a legendary piano bar in the heart of Greenwich Village. 
The bar was purchased by a French woman named Marie Dumont back in 1929. She wanted to honor Payne's legacy and the pamphlet series American Crisis, you know, the one that Washington and his men read for inspiration during the Revolutionary War. Hence the bar's name, Marie's Crisis. You know Marie's Crisis? Yes, exactly. What do you think of that idea? If we did a memorial for Tom Payne, a memorial do-over at Marie's Crisis, you'd like that? Absolutely. You would come and and say a few words to deliver a sort of eulogy. Absolutely. Terrific. We'll have food. We'll have drink. What kind of music should we play? You could do uh, drinking songs from the era, which were very popular. Better yet, we could sing an original song at our Thomas Paine Memorial do-over. And I know just the people who could write a memorial service showstopper. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. Hey, everyone. It's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. Hey, it's Mo. Go ahead, the right door. Okay. I'm visiting with the brilliant Larry O'Keefe and Nell Benjamin. They are the ultimate team. They wrote the music and lyrics for the Broadway musical Legally Blonde. Separately, Nell wrote the lyrics for Mean Girls. And Larry co-wrote the music lyrics and book for Heather's The Musical. And they're married. We've been friends since college. I'm not sure what's happening. It's, yeah, it's exciting. all very exciting. It's a podcast. <laughs> They've agreed to write a big closing number for our Thomas Paine Memorial do-over. Let's get down to brass tacks. Okay. Does anything yeah. rhyme with pamphlet? <laughs> oh, damn. <laughs> it's, it, well, you know, it depends on how pop and hip-hop we're going to go. Into, so, you know, John Adams might say that Tom Paine's latest pamphlet is the biggest scam yet. Yeah. And so I intend to slam it. That's nice. Mm-hmm. You know, this does not have to be a somber affair. I feel like we're looking for something with a, a little bit of a popular feel. It's hummable, repeatable. Yeah. We've already kind of determined we want a sing-along that would be appropriate for a piano bar. Great. So that means a certain level of rah-rah, a certain level of fun and goofiness. Okay, they're going to need some time to write this song. In the meantime, I'm going to tell you what happened to Thomas Paine after he died. You may remember biographer Craig Nelson mentioning Payne's bones. Well, there's a whole story there. Thomas Paine doesn't have a gravesite because his body was taken from his grave. That's author Bess Lovejoy. My book is called Rest in Pieces, The Curious Fates of Famous Corpses. Bess writes how an Englishman by the name of William Cobbett traveled to New Rochelle. At dawn, one September morning in 1819, he dug up Payne's body out of the ground and packed it into a trunk and, and got on a ship to Liverpool with it. He planned to build a magnificent monument to Payne, for which he'd need money. 
Cobbett planned a big fundraiser for the monument he wanted to build, um, and it ended up being scheduled for the same day that King George III died, uh, which was just really bad timing. Scheduling conflicts aside, it's not like many Brits back then had any interest in memorializing pain. He was still persona non grata there. So Cobbett basically gave up his plans for the monument. And he basically let Thomas Paine's bones um, just kind of molder in a trunk in a corner of his house for years. When Cobbett himself dies, the trunk of moldering bones goes on a seemingly endless journey, first to a neighbor, then to a tailor. They next fall into the hands of a radical publisher. But at that point, the trail grows not exactly cold, but pretty murky and complicated. Other people claim to have some of the bones. One fan apparently found a piece of his brain and returned it to New Rochelle. And there's a rumor that Payne's brain is actually inside a monument on the grounds and like a hollow portion of the bust. But no one's really sure where on the farm it is. Um, and then throughout the 20th century, bits of Thomas Paine were reported all over Europe and other parts of the world. There's a rumor that parts of the bones were made into buttons, but we don't have a lot of detail about that. Payne's bones were grist for the mill when I was meeting with Larry and Nell. There are rumors of a leg bone in the, ball, in the wall of a tavern in England. And it's probable that the skull has been located in Wales, but is now in Australia. I'm, but- he- <laughs> I'm, hearing, I'm hearing the phrase, where my bone's at. <laughs> I'm hearing that, where my bone's where at. Where my bone's at? From the front to back, now as you feeling that. Oh my God, where my bone's at. Pain's What's Pain's that? remains. Pain's remains, Pain's remains. And he does remain, doesn't he? He does. Pain. Finally, the happy day arrives. Our Thomas Paine Memorial do-over at Marie's Crisis. Hey, everybody. Welcome. So sad that you're all here. Uh, Just sit tight out here for a few more minutes. We'll start letting you in in just a few minutes or so. Sound good? Mourners line up outside. I have a lot of friends that have performed here before, but I just, I don't really know the significance, I guess. At the front entrance, there's a memorial plaque. Uh, it says Thomas Paine, so there's a picture of Thomas Paine. And, oh, he th- he died on this site. This young man is about to learn a lot more. Good afternoon, I'm Mo Rocca, and welcome to Marie's Crisis. 210 years ago, where we convene, Thomas Paine died. His obituary read in part, he had lived long, done some good, and much harm. <laughs> That's just not the way to treat a founding father. And so we gather here today for a Thomas Paine Memorial do-over. Please welcome Paine biographer, Craig Nelson. You know, I really am happy to be invited because there were six people at his funeral, and I guess there's like 15 here today. So yay, it's working, it's working. As promised, Craig Nelson delivers the eulogy. Thomas Paine's common sense just begins by asking a couple of questions. Why should a continent be ruled by an island? And why should the leader of our government be the child of the person who had the job before him? And it ended with, we have it in our power to begin the world over again. The crowd is riveted, especially when Craig starts talking about Thomas Paine's bones. So right now at this moment, there's a man on his deathbed and he's saying, and to you, my darling daughter, I bequeath the tibia of the immortal Thomas Paine. Oh my God, Craig, your energy, like it's amazing. (laughs) Don't ever do cocaine. (laughs) 
Now, if we were doing this back in 1809, we might have thought to bring a mutton roast. But instead, we brought a comedian, one of the very best, to roast pain. My buddy from The Daily Show. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome my friend, Louis Black. I never really thought that my career would lead me to this moment. I really expected much more of myself than, than to be roasting a dead man. Uh, but that's the way it is. What is it with pamphlets? You know what else they call pamphlet writers? They call them lazy. Couldn't write more than 20 pages? I guess Thomas Paine couldn't write all the time. He needed to save time for sleeping and drinking and annoying the shit out of people at parties. <laughs> so now Paine isn't exactly remembered as a legend. I mean, Ronald Reagan beat the Soviets and got an airport in D.C. named after him. <laughs> what do you get? A gay bar in the West Village named after you? <laughs> Did you feel that? That was Thomas Paine rolling around in his grave. Oh, wait, that's right, they stole his bone. People ate, people drank, and then it was time for the finale. And now we end our Thomas Paine Memorial redo with what else? A production number written by Nell Benjamin and Lawrence O'Keefe. Kings are tyrants, and King George is a stupid, brutish man who's laid the world in ashes. Screw all kings and fascists, time to kick them out hard as we can. that high. He was rude and melancholic and a world-class alcoholic. You're too extra, Tom. They said bye-bye. said, Thomas, come and help us keep it pure. But Tom said, Don't kill your king. France replied, Are you kidding? The Brits were right. You are a crock, monsieur. bones were sold and scattered but he lives in us to this very day both his love of liberty and his weird misanthropy are hardwired in our nation's DNA
next time on Mobituaries, the pioneering Black congressman of Reconstruction. Reconstruction is a moment of incredible hopefulness. When Frederick Douglass saw the portrait of Hiram Revels, he said, at last, the Black man is represented something other than a monkey. I certainly hope you enjoyed this Mobituary. If you would, please rate and review our podcast. You can also follow Mobituaries on Facebook and Instagram. And you can follow me on Twitter, at MoRocca. For more great content about Thomas Paine, please visit Mobituaries.com. You can subscribe to Mobituaries wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of Mobituaries was produced by Gideon Evans and Megan Marcus. Our team of producers also includes Harry Wood and me, Moraka. It was edited by Meg Dalton and engineered by Dan DeZula and Mark Cantori. Additional editing by Sam Egan and David Fox. Special thanks to the great Bill Curtis, Donna LaPietra, Megan Dietrich, Michael Crowder, Nora Slanimsky, Randy Taylor, and the owners of Marie's Crisis, Howard Bragman, John May, Paul Miles, Don Ralph, Lawrence O'Flahaven, Emma Cortland, Mindy Eisenberg Stark, The Thomas Paine Cottage, and All Wise Meadery. Indispensable support from Genia Staneski, Richard Rohrer, and everyone at CBS News Radio. The showstopper Drink to Thomas Paine was composed by Lawrence O'Keefe and Nell Benjamin. Our Knock 'em Dead cast of singers and musicians included Jane Bernard, Matt DeSilva, Rachel Flynn, Brooke Quintana, and Jacob Reenstra. Our theme music is written by Daniel Hart. And as always, undying thanks to Rand Morrison and John Carp, without whom mobituaries couldn't live. We leave you now with more of Bill Curtis as John Adams insulting Thomas Paine. All right. Okay. A mongrel between pig and puppy begotten by a wild boar on a bitch wolf. A mongrel between pig and puppy begotten by a wild boar on a bitch wolf. A mongrel between pig and puppy, begotten by a wild boar on a bitch wolf. Hi, it's Mo. If you're enjoying Mobituaries the Podcast, may I invite you to check out Mobituaries the Book. It's chock full of stories not in the podcast. Celebrities who put their butts on the line, sports teams that threw in the towel for good, Forgotten fashions, defunct diagnoses, presidential candidacies that cratered, whole countries that went kaput, and dragons. Yes, dragons. You see, people used to believe that dragons were real until... Just get the book. You can order Mobituaries, the book, from any online bookseller or stop by your local bookstore. And look for me when I come to your city. Tour information and lots more at mobituaries.com. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Pluma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds to Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. 